Good morning. If you got your Bibles, go to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we're going to begin at verse 28. First, let us pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, God, please clear our hearts, clear our minds, God, to hear you. Help us focus on you, Father God, in the name of Jesus. Speak and speak clearly, God. Help us learn it, God, to love it and live it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're picking up in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. Very famous verse. We're going to use it just as a setup. And we're continually talking about us being made in the image of God. And last week when we were talking, we was talking about how our being is primary to what we do. That we need to focus more on being what God created us to be. And the doing will come from that. As long as we are who we're supposed to be, we will do what we're supposed to do. Because God created us. He gave us destiny in the way that he made us. And in this Romans chapter 8 verse 28, just get a picture because we're going to start to tie this in with the new creation and, and being born again and how sin and the fall messed up and marred the image of God. Because all the beautiful things we've been saying about being made in the image of God, if we be honest with ourselves, we don't see the reality of that in the lives of the vast majority of people. That when we look around the globe, when we experience people, when we live life, when we raise children and all the various things that we do in our lives, we don't see this beauty, this grandeur, this great splendor that God made man in. The world we live in is a dark, a chaotic, disordered world. And most of the darkness, most of the chaos comes from the image bearers, those who were formed and created after the image of God. Here in the 20th and 21st century, it's been one of the most bloody times in the history of man, in our modern history. And it's most of us it's been created by men. And we're doing all this just foolishness that's going on on the planet. All the death, all the hurt, all the pain, all the chaos, even within families. So how is it that we can talk about man with such glory, such splendor, with such destiny, and still see all the chaos we see. And that's what we're going to start transitioning to. But before we get there, I want to paint this picture a little more clearly in our mind. Because we talked about the image of God. And we said that Christ was the expressed image of God. He was the image of God in, in human form. And so we can learn more about what we're supposed to be. The more we learn about who Christ was. How Christ lived. But let's read this for a second. Romans eight twenty eight, And said, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. This is Paul giving a picture of our redemption. Talking about the all things working together for the good of them who are called according to God's purposes. Then he begins to give us a picture of these purposes of God. That's why he said, for whom? So he's explaining what he means by the called according to the purposes of God. So this called according to the purposes of God are those who are loved by God 
the picture of it is this picture of redemption. The ones whom he called, he predestinated that they be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So the basis of our purpose in this new creation, this regeneration, is to be transformed, conformed, remade back into the very thing that we were created to be from the beginning. When God made man, he made man to be the image of God. Christ is the image of God. So now in this new creation, when we're born again, when the spirit of God comes to dwell inside of us, this new life, this regeneration is a new creation. God is remaking the thing that he created in the beginning. Men in the image of God. That's why they said that Christ may be the firstborn among many brethren. And we talked about that firstborn a couple weeks ago. So Christ is the preeminent one amongst a whole bunch of people just like him. So God has elevated us to the place where we are like him. We share in his nature. We share in his characteristics. And he's the preeminent one amongst us. So that's our destiny. That's the goal of all our striving. To be like Christ is here in this world. That's that's the reason Jesus died. That's the reason he came to redeem a people unto himself, to be like unto himself, to restore the works of God. Because if man can die less than the image of God, Satan won. Because when God set out to create creation, he put forth his plan, and that was to create men after his image, after his likeness, to give them dominion here on this earth and allow them to reign and rule and expand his kingdom here on this planet. When Satan entered into the garden and brought confusion, brought sin into the world, that image was marred. No longer were there men walking around looking like God, bearing the characteristics of God. You only saw pockets of it, but no full expression. So if we can continue in that same vein all the way to the end of creation, Satan, his goal was accomplished. He thwarted the plan of God. But God is victorious. He won't lose. And everything he set out to do, he will accomplish. So our hope and our confidence is in him. But since God had a plan and his plan included us, that gives us more hope and more confidence as we walk in this world to know that the God of the universe has a plan that he's going to accomplish and we're all part of it. And a part of that plan is to have men and women who look like him. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So no matter what we see in this planet, no matter what we see in ourselves of our failures and our weakness, we don't put our trust in that. Because it wasn't my plan to make me. It wasn't my plan to have me live in this planet. It wasn't my idea that I supposed to be good and do great and accomplish great things. No, that, that, that wasn't me. I didn't make that up. So if I can't pull it off, it's not my fault. I wasn't supposed to be doing it anyway. It's God's plan. This is God's universe. God is the one who's working and God is the one who's pulling off his task. So when he say that he predestinated us, all he's saying is that he marked that off as the point in which we're supposed to be. So since it's his plan and his idea, he's the one to work that's working to bring it to pass. All I got to do is be a willing participant in the plan of God. And I can be what he created me to be. I can be how he destined me to be because he's the one that's pulled it off. He is the creator. What did Adam have to do to be made in the image of God? Nothing. There was no Adam to do anything. Once Adam became Adam, he was in the image of God. So what does a reborn me have to do to be made and display the image of God? Nothing but be created. 
to allow my life to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. See, we, we got that all messed up. Because most people think that you got to renew your mind. That ain't what Paul said. He said, be transformed by the renewing. So there's a renewing that takes place that transforms you. And this is the renewing that comes when we're recreated by the Spirit of God. So what we're going to venture into, and it's something that's, that's something that weighed heavy on me this week. I'm going to give you a little bit of a picture. And we're going to try to understand what it is we're supposed to be. And, and the mindset I want to do is change our minds a little bit. And try to get to the point of disposition. Like what, what our heart set should be when we come to practice. Go to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 verse 37. Acts chapter 10 verse 37 says. That word I say you know what was published throughout all Judea. And began from Galilee after the baptism was John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. Who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. For God was with him. And this is the picture. He's talking about the word that was preached. He says, started in Galilee when John baptized Jesus. And this is the thing. He said, how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. So Jesus, anointed of God with the Holy Ghost in given power, went about throughout all the regions doing good and healing people. And why did he do it? Said because God was with him. Y'all, y'all get see the picture. Like I said, when Christ came, we talked about this some time ago. When Christ came to this earth as the God man, he lived as a real man. He lived, he dethroned himself, robbed himself of glory, and lived as a human being. He was a man. Full deity, but clothing as a man. He came down. He became like the seed of Abraham. So the things that he did, he did it the same way we're supposed to do it. Say God anointed him with the Holy Ghost and with power. And he went about doing good, healing because God was with him. So the way Jesus was able to do his ministry, the way Jesus was able to love on people, the way Jesus was able to express all the benefits and the greatness of God was because God was with him. Now, as we read our scriptures, God makes us a promise. After the Great Commission, he said, Lo, I am with you. Even to the ends of the world. Therefore you go. So the same thing that Jesus had. He made that promise to us. So God is with us. Which means we should be able to do what? Go about doing good. And healing people. Doing good. And healing people. But this is the mindset switch I want us to get to. Now when we look through the ministry of Jesus. And he was doing these goods. And he was healing these people. Jesus wasn't doing good for the sake of doing or being good. Let's let's take, well, we ain't got to go there. There's a journey to save time. We ain't going to take this journey. You can do it in your reading. Read the Gospels. In just about every other chapter or so, when Jesus meet people, when Jesus heal people, you see the same word that shows up. It said Jesus looked upon them with compassion. Man came to him blind. Jesus looked upon him with compassion. Jesus preaching to the people, laying it down. He said they were with him and he was ministering to them all day. Then they get to a point where he said he looked over the crowd with compassion because they have been with him long all day. Now that's deep. That one always give me a pause a little bit. 
Because I've been to some deep conferences and, and services and all that type stuff. And man, you being that brother be laying it down. They're doing their thing. They're preaching, preaching good and preaching hard. Then when it's over, that man pull out his bucket and say, I want all y'all to give your best. <laughs> Jesus ain't do that. Jesus had people who never hit with him for a long time. They was out there all day walking and talking with Jesus. And Jesus pulled out some buckets. Some buckets of fish because he had compassion on the people. But roles are reversed nowadays. And they want us to have compassion on the preacher. He been preaching all this time. Now y'all bless the brother. Now is that wrong with supporting the man of God? No it's not. But it's the heart that I'm talking about. The heart of Jesus was a heart of compassion. And the thing that I want us to get with is we, as we go about doing good, as we go about healing and loving on people, understand love comes from a heart of compassion. That when we see a dying in a broken world, we got to be like Jesus. We're not trying to do tricks. We're not trying to be great. We're not trying to accomplish some task so that we can get a good mark and they can say, that sister there is a good sister. That's not what we're looking for. What we want is to love people. We want to have the heart of God towards people that when we see them in their foolishness, when we see them in their brokenness, our heart breaks. So our goodness should be motivated by compassion. We don't care what they think about us. We don't care how they respond to us. We don't care what it looks like when we do it. All we want to do is love people. Y'all understanding what I'm saying? So that's the mindset switch we need to have because we can read this and say Jesus went about doing good. So we got to be like Jesus. So let grit our teeth and go out there and do real good things for people. So we're going to put on our DNA T-shirts and we're going to walk out there in front of the grocery store at Costco's and pass out water because we want them to know that we good people. No. That, that ain't how we get down. We don't want people to know that we good people. We want to love people and we want to be good people. We're not trying to draw people to ourselves. We're not trying to draw people to a church. We're not trying to draw people to be a part of a ministry. What we're doing is loving and hurting because people are hurting. That's the heart that Jesus had. Read it through every time. Jesus looked on them with compassion. Jesus had compassion on them. Jesus had bowels of mercy towards the multitude. That's the heart that we're supposed to have. Go to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. It's hard to pick a spot to start. 16 said, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? You, you, you see, this is John. He's talking about the love of God. He's talking about our love for our brother. And before that, he's talking about the, the, this is how we know the children of God versus the children of the, of the devil. Whoever hated his brother is not a child of God. Say, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. So John is big on hating your brother. But then he gives an explanation of what the love of God is, is like. Say, when you see your brother in need and you have this world's goods, so you got a brother that needs something and you have the ability or the power to fulfill that need. But notice what he said. And he shuts up his bowels of compassion. 
So when John understand it, that love is displayed and love is motivated by compassion. So there's something deep down inside of a child of God that compels him to do good for other people. And we need that heart. We don't need the actions. There's billions of people out here just passing out money saying they're doing good. That's fine. Those, that's a good thing to do. But that ain't what we're looking for. We're looking for that heart that we have that compassion that we truly want to see our brother help. And that's what compels us. That's what motivates us to do what it is we're supposed to do. And if we have that heart, we won't feel like we're being used and abused and mistreated. We, you won't have that time. I ain't going to let nobody take over me and take advantage of me. I ain't no doormat. People just ain't going to walk all over me. They can't walk all over you because you're doing what you want to do. You want to help people irregardless of their response and their purpose and their heart and their mind. That's the heart you have. You want to see people help. And if you figure out he's just a slickster and a liar, that hurts your heart even more. Because not only is he broke, this brother needs some help because he's distant from Jesus. That should make you mad. That should make you cry. Because this is the thing that motivates us. Our bowels are compassion, not our desire to do good. We do good because we love people. And loving people is having a heart of compassion. Y'all getting what I'm talking about? And notice what John said. He shuts up his bowels of compassion. So this is how we perceive the love of God. So in the mind of John, to have love is to have bowels of compassion. So this compassion comes with love. So let's just say we need a little more compassion and we recognize that we ain't as compassionate as we're supposed to be. What you don't do is try to figure out no seven steps to be more compassionate. What you don't do is try to psychologically trick yourself like some of the people going to tell you. See, we need to be people of compassion. So for the next 30 days, we're going to get little water bottles and take them to work. And we're going to put Jesus truly loves you on them. And we're going to walk around the streets and just give them to people. And if we do that for 30 days, God will so touch our hearts. That's a lie. If you be filled with the spirit, God has so touched your heart. That you can't help but love people. Second Corinthians 5. Paul said the love of God constrains us. Romans 5. He said the love of God has been shed abroad through our heart. So we got this love. And if ever we seek for any means outside of the grace and love of God to fulfill that love. We're turning the grace of God into something that is not. We're turning away from it. We ain't got to look for other stuff. Let's look to Jesus. Because who plan is it? God's. Who's remaking me in his image? God. So who's supposed to give me this heart of compassion? God. All I got to do is trust him. Let's make this thing go a little deeper. Watch. Go to uh, Matthew chapter 23. I'm going to read this. Matthew chapter 23. We ain't going to read the whole thing just for time's sake. But we're going to read a good chunk of it. Because I want to paint this whole picture. 
to help you see it. We're going to 23 verse 7, 16, 16. It said, woe unto you, you blind guides which say, whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blinds, for whether is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold. And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever swear by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. You fools and blinds, for whether is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctified the gift. Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, swear by it, and by all things thereon. And whoso shall swear by the temple, swear by it, and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that shall swear by heaven, swear by the throne of God, and by him that sitteth thereon. Warn to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, faith. These ought you to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind gods will strain out a gnat, and swallow a camel. War unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisees, cleanse first that which is that which is in, within the cup and the platter, and the outside of them may be clean also. War unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so you also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisies and iniquity. War unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore you be witnesses unto yourselves that ye be the children of them which kill the prophets. Fill you up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can you escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto Zacharias, Berechias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killedest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, for I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth till you say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. This is an amazing passage. And the reason I wanted to read the whole thing is to, is to get the full tenor of it. Now, if you read it, go all the way back to the beginning. This is Jesus. And he ain't the little Jesus we be seeing on the movies in, in this passage right here. Dude with the long hair and, and, the, and the blue eyes, all nice, speaking all soft. He going hard on these people. He calling them out. He preaching. He using logic to show them the, the foolishness of, of, of all their thinking. He truly going hard. He calling them names, vipers. Your generations of scorpions. He, he really going in on these people. Because they were living in a place, in a state, to where they were under a delusion. They thought they were righteous, but they really weren't. They thought they were good, but they really weren't. And he's saying, you are blind leaders of the blind. Y'all sending people to hell. You ain't going to escape the damnation that's going to come. Jesus really going hard. I thought Jesus was supposed to be the love of God. He is. And this is true love. 
this willingness to call the people out and let them know what the business is. He really went after them, but I like how he ended this thing. In verse 37, his tone switches. Because all up until then, he's giving out these woes. Woe is a, of a warning of judgment. Calling them out. But in verse 37, his tone switches and he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stoned them which are sent unto thee, how often I would have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings, and you would not. His tone switches to a cry of agony. Anytime you see that double repetition like that, that's an emphasis. So when he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he's crying out now. He moved from scolding, casting down judgment, to now he's crying in a cry of anguish. And he's declaring his heart towards the people that he would, he desired, he longed to gather them together. But they didn't want it. And the thing that, that catches me is, is the heart of compassion that Jesus has and displayed to his compassion towards the people, even though he ridiculing them, even though he's casting judgment over them, even though he thinks everything they're doing is wrong, he still weeps for them. And this is something that really struck me this week. It's where is the weeping and the anguish in the midst of the people of God. We don't cry anymore. We decry all of the evils of our world. And we shake our head. And when we sit down, we watch on the news, this people, many people shot, and these people shot, and these people shot, and all the killing and the things that are going on in our city, but we see no weeping. Our hearts are not broken. That we're raising children and we begin to see in them things that ain't quite right. That ain't the way it's supposed to be. In our minds we get frustrated and we know, God, what am I supposed to do? I'm trying my best. But when was the last time you got on your knees before God and you pleaded? God, have mercy on my children. God, save my son. God, reveal yourself to him. When was the last time when you saw your brother or sister in a fault and you saw them slipping away from the household of God and you saw the, the change in them and you just wept in your heart because you see it, you know they're not what they're supposed to be. If God can do this over people who would kill him, over people who set out to destroy him, why can't we do it over the ones that we love? Where's that heart? And it's something that God really convicted me about. Because there was a time where day by day, night by night, I would cry over my brother, over my sister, nieces, nephews. But now it's just pat prayers. God, please save them. If somebody preach them, let them hear. That's not a heart of love. Because if we truly see the judgments that Jesus is putting down, if we can truly decry the things and say the same stuff that he's saying, why aren't we weeping? Why isn't our heart broken? Why isn't we saying, God, my sister, God, have mercy on her soul. She don't know you and she don't want to hear you, God, but you need to save her. Jesus, Jesus, draw them. And that's what he's saying. How often I desire to gather you like a hen desire to gather her chicks. And if you watch the hen gather the chicks, usually they do that and they scurry them in in times of fear. When danger is near, they shove them in. 
And he's saying, this is what I want to do to you. I want to protect you from the danger that's come. Desolation and war is coming to this place. You're going to be cast down. You're going to be judged. But my heart is to gather you. Are y'all understanding what I'm saying? In the book of Nehemiah, you had two great men. Nehemiah and you had Ezra. Ezra was the priest and the preacher. He went down to the place. He condemned and he scolded people. Called them out for all their perverted marriages. He was doing the thing. But there was this one guy, Nehemiah. And when news came back to Nehemiah about the state of Jerusalem, it said he wept bitterly. He had the heart of God. It said he wept bitterly. To the point where he was going to work and could not properly do his job. The king see him and says, something wrong with you, Nehemiah. What's going on? And the Bible says he prayed, then he spoke. That's deep. He was in a state of anguish that drove him. Why was he crying? Why was his heart so broken? Because he knew the plans of God for his city. And when they came back to report it, the things that God said was going to be wasn't. God released the people after 70 years of captivity and they were supposed to rebuild the temple and they were supposed to be regathered and it was supposed to be this glorious thing where God returned to his people. The spirit of God is poured out, but he didn't see that. The walls were torn down. People were mistreating one another. They had payday loans down up in that thing. They were taking advantage of the, of the poor. That's what they were doing. They was taking advantage of people. Instead of setting up the temple of God, they were setting up banks giving out loans, taking advantage of people. And this broke the heart of Nehemiah that he cried and he cried and he cried to the point where the the king saw it on his face. He couldn't get himself together. And if Nehemiah can have that heart towards some city and some gates, where is that heart in me? Towards the people that I claim to love. Why don't I weep? Why don't I cry? Why don't I get on my face before God and pour out my heart? And the amazing thing is we live in a culture where we got like hundreds and thousands of books on prayer. It all the way through. I'm talking about people got rich out prayer. People don't even pray. <laughs> they got rich out prayer. Saying you got Christian brothers, they made a movie about prayer. Got broke off about praying. All this stuff about praying. But then when you talk to regular church folks and preachers and pastors and you ask them how often do you pray I done read the book I done watched the movie then been to a conference all these things about prayer but we ain't praying but the thing get a little deeper because when we think about why we praying I ain't got nothing to pray about or I don't know how to pray that long but you got lost loved ones that don't know Jesus. You got children that you're raising that you ain't quite seen the spirit of Jesus manifesting them quite yet. You got church members and brethren that you know drifted away that, 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 that ain't displaying the character of Jesus. Um, you, you, you turn on the TV and you see the, the, the wretched low-down preacher proclaiming the name of God and defaming the name of Jesus and that should break your heart too. So you got a lot to pray about. You got even here in this very own city that the people who pound in the pavement and the people who get not done, drawing people in, are the ones who don't know God. They call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses and they're taking over our city. 
in the mix of our young brothers, our young dark-skinned brothers. You got the, the Hebrew Israelite there turning them away from God and telling them who they truly are. But we ain't got nothing to cry about. Our murder rate is rising and rising and rising like we a big city. But we ain't got nothing to pray about. We got AIDS that's all out there. They compare us to, in the CDC. They compare us to Africa. Right here in this state of Alabama. But we ain't got nothing to cry about. We ain't got nothing to pray about. Yes, we do. And even when we look within ourselves, although we may see victory, and although we may see times of triumph, we know that we, we got some rising and some, and some power that we need to see displayed in this place and within our own hearts. But we ain't got nothing to pray about. We do. But more than praying, we need to be crying out with a heart of anguish towards God, weeping over the things that we cast down and that we judge. Should we tell them they're wrong? Yes. Should we go hard after them? Yes. But we should turn that hardness to a cry when we stand before God. God, please have mercy on their souls. They're taking pornographic ideas and images and they're parading it before our children, calling it health education. But we ain't got nothing to cry about. They got big old linebackers in dresses trying to teach our men how to be don't know what they're trying to teach them how to be. But we don't have nothing to cry about. We got lives who have not begun to live millions upon millions and they've been paraded in this great U.S. of A. But we ain't got nothing to cry about. Yes, you got much to pray about. You got much to be on your knees about. But what we need is that heart of compassion, that heart that can be broken, that heart that can feel the angles where we can bear one another's burdens. Because there's always broken people within our gate. There are always the hurtings within our you know, within our vicinity that we know about. And our heart needs to break for them. When was the last time you cried over a loved one? When was the last time you just almost lost your voice in prayer because you was crying out because of the wickedness and the desperation that you see before your eyes? We shake our head and we say, God, it shouldn't be like this. How they take it over our children and they take it over our schools, but we don't get on our knees and we say, God, have mercy on our children. God, have mercy on our schools. We just sit back. And we create campaigns to try to fight against the gays because we go against homosexual marriage and we, we, we for the protection of marriage. You ain't for the protection of marriage because your bishop been divorced by four, five, six, seven times and you ain't cried for him yet. That's the desecration of marriage. When a man who's supposed to be a man of God can forsake his vows but still stand up and teach you how to love God. He can't love his own wife. How can he teach you how to love God? We're supposed to weep and cry for that. We need to put up some signs and picket that. Because God don't like that. And these are the things that break the heart of God and it should break our heart too. Let's weep. Let's cry. Let's get on our knees with a heart of compassion for our city, for our people, for our family. Because this is the heart of God. But just like with everything, this is not something we muster up. Because you can't muster up compassion. You can't muster up the strength to cry and weep. If it don't hurt, it don't hurt you. 
So we need God to break our hearts and we need to begin to pray, God, give me your heart. God, show me your view. Let me see people the way that you see them, God. Give me a burden for my family. Give me a burden for my church. Give me a burden for my neighbors, for this city, for the children that are being paraded with all this confusion. Give me a burden for the lost, for the hurt, for the downcast. And God will begin to overload your heart to the point where you can't do nothing but cry out. And this is a heart that is manifested through the image of God. Jesus did it. How often do you see that he went alone to pray? He spent all night in prayer. Before the greatest moment of his life, it said he cried and he wept and sweat. Great drops of blood. He was in anguish. Carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. He was in anguish. And we should be in anguish because God has given us a ministry to reconcile people unto himself. We're doing the same thing Jesus did. We're filling up or finishing the work of Christ. By extending that kingdom, extending that love and displaying that love to people. So we need to have that love in our heart. Are y'all with me? This is the disposition of love. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We'll start at verse one. We're talking about the disposition or the mindset, the heart of the image of God. It's a heart of compassion, a heart that get overwhelmed out of love for people. This is true love. In Philippians chapter two, it's Paul breaking it down. Now watch this. So if there be any, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, I'm starting at verse one, Philippians two. If any comfort or love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like minded, having the same love, being a one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also have highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in the earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this this, this is a very deep passage here. What Paul is talking about is he put it in the middle. He said, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So that her first four verses set up the idea of what he's talking about. What is the mind of Christ? As he said, we have the mind of Christ. He says that in Corinthians. So we got Christ's mind. But in his mind and in his passage, what he's teaching is that the mind of Christ is a mind of humility. Look, he said, let nothing be done. Out of strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. So what he's saying is when we get together, when we be in people on this planet, everything we do should not be for me. It should not be done out of strife. I'm not doing anything to get back at anybody. 
I'm not doing anything to, to attack. My motives ain't to hurt. My motives ain't to pull down people. Nothing done out of strife. And he says nothing done out of vainglory. What do you mean by vainglory? It's empty. And, and it's a euphemism for selfishness. So nothing done to beef up self. Everything we do, it ain't about strife. It ain't about beefing up self. But watch what, what he said. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. So this is the mind of Christ. So when we're dealing and when we're doing with people, say in lowliness, with a humble mind, you put yourself down and you lift everybody else up. That's deep. Put yourself down and you lift everybody else up. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. So the way I relate to Chelsea is as if Chelsea is better than me. And she deserves more than I do. Hmm. I just got this thought. Now what if this was the mindset of every marriage? What if the way that we related to our spouses is this other is more important than I am. And I need to do all I can to lift them up. Nothing done out of strife. I ain't trying to get back. I ain't bringing up no grudge. Nothing done out of vainglory. I'm not trying to make myself look good in this argument. So if she tell me something that ain't quite right, I don't defend me. Because I'm doing nothing out of vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, I'm esteeming her. Oh, Hold on now. How the man going to esteem the woman when the man supposed to be the head? Ain't that what the bishop told you? Man is the head of his house. And at the head, he in charge. And the woman need to get in line. But he said, let this mind be in you what was also in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the head of all creation. And when he saw a flaw, flaw in his spouse, what he did? Humbled himself. Came down. Became a servant. Hmm. So it's possible for the head to be the head by getting at the bottom. If Jesus can do it, I ain't greater than him. You, you, you get in the picture. That's what I mean. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. So whatever our concept of headship, we got to run it by Jesus because he's the true head of all creation. Whatever our idea of what it means to be a leader, we got to run it by Jesus because he's the one who leads all creation. And Jesus, in his leadership role, I'm supposed to have the mind of Christ. And the mind that Christ had is that I love these people so much that I'm going to dethrone myself. I'm going to live less than what I am so that I can make them what they're supposed to be. And if a husband had that mind towards his wife, how great would the relationship be? That I can humble myself. That I can set aside my pride. And I can serve and love my wife to get her to the spot where she's supposed to be. And if all our pastors and preachers had this mindset, that I can step myself down and I'm on the same level as my people. I ain't no great me, it's great them. Because the work of God is done through the people of God. And I need to lift these people up. Because that's the mindset that Jesus has. And that's the mindset that we're supposed to have. And if we are in Christ, that's the mind that you have. A mind of, of servanthood. A mind of lowliness. A mind where you value other people. That other people are valuable. Other people are great. 
Peter told us that we should honor all men. That get, that get deep. He said honor all men. He don't put no parameters on it. So that means just like I can stand up for the bishop and give him a clap when he walk in the service, I should be able to stand up with Cabronica walking here. Glad to see you serving the Lord. Glad to see you pushing on. Girl, you're doing your thing. Because she's a creation of God in the image of God. And that's the only great thing about any of us is that God made us. And if the same thing that's great about all of us, we all got it, that means ain't no great us. Because if everybody on the same level, don't nobody stick out. So if she great because she made in the image of God and the only thing great about me is that he recreated me in his image, that means we got the same thing. So I should be able to applaud her just like she should be able to applaud me. And I should be able to lift her up just because she should be able to lift me up. Because I see in her the thing, the only thing that make me worth something. And that's God. So this is the mindset of the people of God. That we put ourselves down. Verse 4. said, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This is the mind of Christ. We're looking out for each other. We're serving each other. Not for self. Not for pride. But just because other people are great. That's it. That's our motivation. Chelsea's made in the image of God. I need to help her. I need to love her. I need to make sure her stuff's straight. As well as mine. Because I look not on the, look on the things of others also. So just the same care I give to her situation, I mean give to mine, I should give to hers. Because she's just as great as I am, if not greater. That's the mindset that we're supposed to have. And if we can get that in our homes and we can get that in our marriages, it will revolutionize things. Because if you got two people, all they're doing is looking out for one another, who's going to come up short? Nobody. And let's just say you get a crazy time where one of them ain't looking out for the other one. And this thing get a little out of hand. And the scales get uneven because the, the people on the TV, Steve Harvey, said marriage supposed to be 50 50. Where you get that from, I don't know. <laughs> but that's what they tell us on the TV. It's supposed to be 50 50. You give and you take, and it's all equal. But what if it ain't equal? Do I get to do wrong because other folks ain't doing right? No. If it ain't all equal, now this, this is a radical concept, and I pray none of you have to endure this. If it ain't all equal, I can celebrate a little bit. Because now I get to be more like God. What you mean by that? Because God had to show love to people who cannot show love back to him. God had to show love to people who hated him. God had to stick in and remain faithful to some people who broke his covenant. Uh-oh. That's, that's, what, that's what God had to do. So if I get in a rough time with things get turn a little bad for worse and in a little manifestation and the vow I made before God and Granny and everybody else, I get to keep it. I get excited like, okay, this what, this what Jesus went through, man. What <laughs> I'm saying, God, I'm going to show my love this woman now. Nah. <laughs> when I'm loving her now, I'm loving like God. <laughs> no matter how much I love her, she's still going to burn my grit. But I'm going to keep on... <laughs> I'm going to keep on loving it anyway because this is how God do it. Huh? Burnt grits don't compare to beer getting plucked out. <laughs> uh, crown of thorns don't, don't, don't compare to a cold beer because she just turned over on you. 
<laughs> but you can keep on loving. Because what you do, you ain't doing it for self. You ain't doing it because it make me feel good. And then we got this mutual thing going on. So long as you giving me what I'm supposed to get, I'm going to give you what you're supposed to get. That ain't how it works. I'm giving you because this is who I am. I'm a person that loves. And no matter what you do to me, I esteem you greater than me. Matter of fact, you so great, you ain't got to do nothing for me. I just want to do for you because I love you. And if we get that all the way around in all our churches and all of our hearts, we're going to have some good people. But the amazing thing I want to point out, and this is going to lead me into what I'm going to talk about a little later. In Genesis chapter 11, I told you in the first 11 chapters of the Bible, you ain't got to turn now, you can read it another time, time. Genesis chapter 11. This is one of the final judgments that came down as a result of the curse. Alright, so you had God banished them out of Eden. Sin entered into the world. Murder and death and all that stuff, chaos began to ravage mankind. Got to the point so great where God brought down judgment on the earth in the form of a flood. Destroyed the whole thing. But then God makes the declaration, no longer shall I destroy the earth with a flood because the imaginations of man's hearts is evil even from their youth. So God got to a place. He recognized people are evil. They're going to keep on being evil. So he begins his plan. Knowing them lead the boat. He gave them the plan. Y'all supposed to go. Replenish the earth. Spread out. They were hardhead. All of them got together and sought to build his temple. They refused to spread out. And they thought they were not going to be spread out. So God brought judgment. And he brought his judgment in the form of confusion. Are y'all tracking with me? He said, let us go down, see what they're doing. When he came down, he recognized, he made this great statement. He said, nothing that man shall do will he not be able to do since they all in one. So since they were on one accord working for one same task, he said they're going to be able to do what it is they're trying to do. So the only way for me to stop them from doing it other than destroying them is to confuse their language so they don't get together no more. And that was the curse that Babel. He brought the multiple languages, separated the people according to their families, according to kindred, according to tongue. Now, if we track history out from that point, we get to the place where we are now. Just, just, I don't know if you ever thought about this. I know we get deep, especially here we in Alabama, Montgomery, the cradle of the Confederacy. I'm saying the center of the civil rights movement and all that good type stuff. We got a messed up history. It's bad. And all these Christian folks that helped create this good state, we got confusion and chaos and death and, and multiplication of death that, that made this great United States. But that's a whole nother subject. But how do we get to this point? We get to this point because of the curse that happened on the people at Babel. It was from that point that confusion, chaos, separation began, and it began to multiply. So you had image bearers hating image bearers because they didn't look like the other image bearers. You had image bearers hating image bearers because they came from a different geographic location than the other image bearers. You had image bearers hating image bearers because they hated them. And that multiplied. And that increased. And then you had this old man, well really he didn't get the blame for it, but a couple of old men who started this crazy thing that we created and we catch identity in it and we call it race. And now we begin to identify ourselves by the separation that happened as a curse of God. That becomes our identity. A cursed thing gives us our identity. Because there were three sons of Noah that populated all creation. 
three of them. And they just had three wives. Populated all creation. So that means slanted eyes, nappy hair, straight hair, big chin, slim chin, fat nose, skinny nose, dark skin, light skin, middle skin, all came from three people. Which ultimately all came from one man. Which means all of this stuff was inside the genetics of the creation that God has made. So all of it is a part of image bearing. There's no special identity that you got. The only special identity that you got is that you were made in the image of God. But we have taken to this thing that this deceived man have told us existed that does not exist. And we have taken to this thing that came from a curse of God. And we have allowed separation to creep into the household of God. Because now we carry over the identity that we got from confusion into the people of God. So we can't relate to certain people because them certain people don't look like us. And this is our identity. Even so deep to now we got folks trying to fix it. And we want to love so we're going to help those others. Thing that always confused my mind, they, why they do it like Joe Biden did? What you mean by that? Joe Biden said that the poor kids can be just as talented as the white kids. What do you mean by that? You see that? That scratch your head. Now, hold on. How does poor equate, equate to, I mean, how does poor contrast with light skin? Hmm. That shows you he has an ideology. In our loving ministries who want to reach out and bring reconciliation to the household of God, got the same mindset. Because when they want to bring reconciliation, they get people who look like the poor people, which would be you. <laughs> and they send you with them to the poor neighborhoods to bring reconciliation so that we can be all one loving people. Now, why they don't switch? Why they don't say, hey, let's get together and we're going to start this great move of God and we're going to get all the people of God together. So y'all go over here and we're going to go over there. Then one day we all going to come back together. They don't do that. They get you and take you with them to the poor, the downcast, the untrodden. Because they have an ideology that's been brought forth from the confusion that took forth as baby because identity was created once God brought separation. But let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He said, let us be of one. What, what, what did he say that thing? Verse 2. said, fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one what? Hold on, hold on now. I thought the church prayer told we ain't going to ever all be together. We always going to have all our separations and all our differences. If this mind of Christ be in you, we can all be of one accord with one mind. What's that one accord and that one mind? That we love God and we love one another. Because my identity ain't what I look like. My identity is who I am. And I don't take pride in the melanin count that's in my skin. Because I got more than my children got. Are we different? I got nieces and nephews that got way less than I got. They lighter than a mug. And I got a brother that got all of beat. <laughs> he dog and chocolate in the world. But he is still my blood. He is still my brother. No matter the separation in, in, of, of, of all this melanin count. Because that ain't my identity. When I stand up and say I'm fish, your son, my brother can say it too. Because that's what we count on. 
He don't look at the fact that I'm tall and he's short. We don't pay no attention to that stuff. He don't look at I got another brother. He don't look at the fact that no matter how much he brush your head, that thing ain't gonna bead on up. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying if I keep mine cut enough, I get a couple waves. He'll never get no waves. <laughs> I don't care what he do. You put relax in that thing. <laughs> That's not a break. <laughs> well, tense up to relax, man. <laughs> but the, the the deal is identity. And the point of restoration and re- reconciliation. In regeneration is us to find our true identity. And the way we identify ourselves is the fact that I am created after the image and the likeness of God. So when I love my brother, I'm not loving somebody different from me. You understand what I'm saying? And I don't have to go through all this crazy confusion to try to justify all the, the foolishness and the evil that went on in this world. I can understand that you were wrong, brother, and I'm sorry that you were wrong. I can understand that there's church traditions that was wrong. They did not know God. They did not love Jesus. Well, that's just part of the time. Yes, it's a part of the time. Being gay is a part of the time. Y'all don't excuse them, folk. So we need to Allow this mind to be recreated by God. And if we have this recreation, our heart will be humble and we can truly see one another as the image of God. Paul made this crazy statement. He said, because of the work of God, since everything being a new creation, whole all things become new. Second Corinthians chapter five. He said, no longer know we any man after the flesh. We don't see nobody after the flesh no more. That's not how we judge people. That's not how we connect with people. That's not how we identify people. No longer do we judge a man after the flesh. But what we do, said the love of God constrains us. So we compel people, be reconciled to God. That's the only thing we got to do. And it's with lowliness of mind, with a humble heart that we do this. We're seeking to love, have compassion, and brokenness towards people that we want to serve them. We are made low, they're made high. Whether they light, dark, no matter what part of the ocean they come from, they're greater than us. And we're servants of them. Do y'all understand? Anybody got any questions? Asking um, the first scripture that you, uh, I don't know, I probably ask this question every time we come across it. Uh, Romans 8. Twenty nine when he when he's talking about whom he did foreknow he did also he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Moreover, whom he did predestinate he also called. And just can you explain again what he means about that foreknow or being predestinated? Because we tend to have in my well, I tend to have in my mind that that means that these are the special people that were. Foreknown or predestinated by God. So you got the idea, and this is a place where church messed us up. So generally, when people read these words, foreknowledge, predestination, you have to pick a side and pick a camp. So the basic way of reading it is that to foreknow literally means to know beforehand. That's 
truly what it means. So there's some people he knew beforehand. And those people he knew beforehand, he called. And the people he called them, he justified. Now, we also got Jesus saying in the Gospels a statement. He said, many are called, but few are chosen. So we have to be able to reconcile all of these things. So you got one camp that's going to tell you, if you receive the call, you're going to be saved and you're going to heaven. Nothing can stop that. And you got another side of the camp that's extreme and say, nah, if God foreknow, he just foreknew that you were going to know what to do and you were going to believe. And that's the only way you got it. I don't see either extreme in the Bible. I see both of them working in harmony. That we got this mystery of God's election. Got this mystery where God talking about that before stuff was done. He talked about Isaac and uh, Esau. So before they had a chance, Jacob and Esau rather, before they had a chance to choose, God determined. That's true. But you also got this picture of what he's calling and he's judging people for their choice. So there has to be some form of reconciliation of the two thoughts and the ideas. And the way I, I, I reconcile it in my mind is, one, is a greater mystery than that we can understand. That God is more complex than we can understand. And two, that in this foreknowledge of God, God is intimately connected with people. That's foreknowledge. He knows. But in this knowing, he crafted you with freedom, with the idea, with the ability to make some choice. And by predestinating, he marked off. That's all predestinate means. He marked this off. So this is the destiny of those whom he have called to be justified. And the justified ones, they will be glorified. This is the marked off part. But according to Jesus in the gospel, it's possible to be called and not be chosen in the sense that you don't respond to the call. Over and over again, we give warnings and they're not faked. He said that if you heard the gospel, you tasted of the good Holy Spirit and you turn away to it, there remains no sacrifice for you. I don't think the Holy Ghost was playing when he put that in there. He's like, I'm just saying that. Just, I'm saying that sound deep. So I'm going to put them words in there. Don't you, you don't have to be worried about that because it's impossible for it to happen to you. No. I think it's real. So it's possible for God to mark out a destiny for a man and a man not meet that destiny. So predestinate means he predetermined. This is the, this is the boundary. It means to set a horizon. He can set it out. He can call you to it. You're not responding to the call. He can call you to it and you be on the path to the call and you turn, take your hand off the plow. You're not fit for the king. Like I said, a lot of people are going to get confused and they tell you what you want saved in the first place and all that other confusion. But all of the Bible has to be true. And we can't kick some out to justify another. You get what I'm saying? So please don't let your mind go to a super extreme of saying that it's all sealed and it's all set. And we ain't got nothing to worry about. If I'm going to be saved, I'm going to be saved. No, you still got to get up and believe in Jesus every single day. And you can't get to the point where, man, it's all on me. If I mess up, then I don't know what's going to happen. No, God still holds and he seals his people. And he got you in the palm of his hand. All you got to do is trust him. So both extremes are true. You get what I'm saying? So he foreknow you. He, he knew you before you were born, before you were crafted. And God is connected with you. And he gave you that call. And you responded to it. That's the work of God as well. But it's still your responsibility. So there's a congruency between the the uh, sovereignty as the theologians say of God and the responsibility of man. 
how it all fleshed out, he don't give us all the details. I ain't seen it yet. Go ahead. I guess the thing that I continue to wrestle with is I, I've heard it taught before that he's talking about everybody because he foreknew all of us. But for him to outline it out like this sounds mm-hmm. like it's not everybody that's foreknown or, or predestined. The same thing with many are called, but you are chosen. It doesn't say that all were called. It I, says many. I and absolutely agree so with that. I, yeah. Because like I said, there's, there's this, this, this heaviness and it's somewhat of a mystery through the Bible that the, the, the call of God don't, 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 don't ring in everybody here. Jesus said it repeatedly. If you have ears to hear what the Spirit has said, let him hear. In uh, Hebrews, he says, if today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the day of provocation. So there's a possibility that the call can go out in a generic way, in a generic term, and you not hear it because of the hardness. Jesus said, I came unto them, but they received me not because their deeds were evil. So they wouldn't come to the light. <clears throat> so in a generic sense of the revelation and the salvation of God has appeared to all men, that's true. But to hear that eternal pull, to hear that eternal tug, I can't 100% say every single person get it. Do you have a chance to hear the call of God? Yes. The gospel is preached everywhere. God has set up creation so that the atheists know that there is a God and that they need to draw nigh and humble themselves unto him. That's the way it's set up. So they're without excuse. But the variation of the intensity of the call, that is the scripture do, it, it gives hint towards that. Jesus said, I thank God that you didn't reveal this unto the wise and prudent of the world, but unto the babes. So he acknowledged that. These Pharisees, these Sadducees, these scribes, you ain't give it to them. But these fishermen, these lowly people, these tax collectors, you gave it unto them. So there is that variation of call. There is that variation of efficacy that we got. What did Abraham do to be chosen as the head of the nation? Absolutely nothing. God called him, chose him, and set the whole thing up. Israel was not a nation, but they became the people of God. He didn't choose China, Egypt. Babylon, and I don't know thing. He didn't call Hammurabi to lead his people. Them was great nations. He chose the lowly. And he did it the way he did it to flex his muscles and show that he God and can't nobody thwart his plan. So the only thing they did to qualify was to be nothing. <laughs> Would that answer your question a little bit? She next to me. Um, is there ever a time where God is like, because I know you say he predestined us for a certain thing. So is there ever a time God is just like, you know, I'm just done with her. She out here doing too much stuff. Like she disqualified and I just can't fool with her no more. So how would that end? Like would it end in death or would you still be living and you just going throughout life? Like how, how does that work? Uh, we can only take this through example. As you read through your Bible, we get a couple examples. Of, of God doing this to people. And one of them, or the easiest one everybody knows is Saul. Saul the, the, Saul of Benjamin, the first king of Israel. Say so he was humble, then he got exalted and sought to honor amongst the people. God turned on him. And the way it worked out in his case was, it said God sent the evil or angry, depressive spirit from heaven to torment him so he continued to live but he lived in torment and depression and he, he suffered with anxiety attacks and manic depressive type states one minute he was happy he was cool he loved David the next minute he was throwing a javelin at him trying to kill him 
One minute he loved the children, next minute he ready to, to snatch their head off. And he, he went through it. So that's what it looked like through the life of Saul. And you got other times where God turns his back on people. Another one is Nebuchadnezzar. He kept revealing himself to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was never a man of God. He was a heathen all the way through and through. He was an idolater all the way through and through. But God continued to show mercy by giving him cause. Daniel kept showing up. God kept giving him dreams and calling him out. And Daniel revealed and he said, oh, Daniel, bless your God. It's the real God. We ain't going to worship no other God. And he turned the page to the other chapter and he building a big old idol. <laughs> and that's the way it worked. And eventually God gave him a dream and say that I exalted you. I'm going to cut you off, but I'm going to leave a stump. You're going to go out in the wilderness. You're going to be a wild man. You ain't going to cut your hair. You ain't going to cut your nails. You're going to eat grass. So Nebuchadnezzar went crazy. Matter of fact, Friday night, Cabronica gave a word like that. she did and that's the way it worked in his life the mercy of God was removed from the life of Nebuchadnezzar and because of his pride he got caught up in himself and went crazy now there are others like I think Hezekiah he got caught up in pride and God came to him and God when he came to him told well you finna die he pleaded with God for mercy and God had mercy on him then he said well I ain't gonna kill you but you're gonna see this death in the life of your children so Hezekiah went on living, but as soon as he died, his family went crazy. All type of murder and all this type of stuff happened to his family. So that's how we saw it manifested in the life of Hezekiah. So you see all these various things, even in the life of David. Most people paint a beautiful picture of David. He was a great man. David was a horrible father. I'm sorry. But you saw the sins of David manifested through his family. The father of Bathsheba turned on David at the end. And he the one that suggested to Absalom to take David's wife up on the thing and sleep with her and embarrass David in front of the people. Why do you think that man did that? Because David embarrassed his family by taking Bathsheba and killing Uriah. Now he served David all them years in the background, lowly. You ain't never hear about him in the Bible. He show up at the end when it's time for David to get his comeuppance. So David continued to live, but he got the backlash of it. So you see times where people just fall out. You see that with Ananias and Sapphira. They sin and lie to get the Holy Ghost and they ain't make it to the next five minutes. <laughs> that was deep. <laughs> so all, all the forms of it are shown and displayed throughout the thing. But in each one of them, except for Ananias, I can't thank you, God ex- gave times or gave a window for turning. Because Sapphira when she came up there and lied, Peter asked her again, are you sure you gave the whole price? That was that time. Like, oh man, you caught me, you know I'm saying. We ain't do it. That was her chance. She didn't take it. You lied. The feet of the one that carried your husband out finna come and get you. Like I said, even with David, he had the chance to multiple times to humble himself and get things right. Even with his son Absalom. Absalom started acting a fool. He burnt up the field trying to get attention from his daddy. David ignored the boy. Then Absalom finally said, forget it then. So he had a chance to remedy the situation in his family. He didn't take advantage of it. So the mercy of God is extended and is shown and he gives us opportunities. So it ain't like you can say, I just messed up one time. God finna kick me to the curb and it's over with. I'm going to die. No, God allows us chance to have mercy. God calls us. He draws us and he extends that mercy to us. Do that mean that mercy going to last? For the rest of our existence. And he always going to be calling. Uh uh. 
Anybody else got a question? Oh, you had one right here. You know, when she spoke about um, foretelling and predestined, you know, if you get looking, you can see where the Bible says men are called for your chosen. We still see where either God Jesus Christ choose mm -hmm. He already knew. Everything you can do. Old Testament tells you the things about, about selling the field and the price mm -hmm. and all that there. So he already knows everything. I got a verse. Can I read this verse? Go ahead. And it talks about loving the world and you know, the styles and the fashion, a lot of things that is being invented and that people are grasping to, uh, it can draw you away from God. So I got a verse right here where it talks about um, over in First John, the second chapter, verse 15, it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, there's another verse, let me share, second Timothy, uh, chapter 4 and verse 9. Well, verse, yeah, verse 9. Do thy diligence to come short, uh, shortly unto him, unto me. He said, for uh, Dunamis has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed. See, it shows you right there. See, the world can pull us away. A lot of things that they put out in front of us, even though God can, he can call you. See, Judas got enticed by the money. So there's a lot of things that can pull us away from our creator. And so we have to be careful also in that note right there. He already knew that Jesus was going to be betrayed. The scripture showed us all of that. Mm -hmm. You know, so he saw that who he had chosen. Some of us are chosen, but don't mean that we're not going to, we can stray away, but we got to come back. Anybody else got any questions? I don't know. I don't know how relevant it is to everything you talked it's about fine. today, but I heard you mention the Hebrew Israelites mm -hmm. and I've got family members that are exploring and learning and I've been exposed to it. So what significance are the children of Israel? Cause they are mentioned throughout the scriptures. Uh -huh. And I just want to know just from your, you know, what you have learned. Um, how are we supposed to look at that? Uh, multiple ways. Okay. <clears throat> the significance of the children of Israel, it starts in Abraham. I mean, Genesis chapter 12, really with the call of Abraham and the way God set it up was that, he would redeem the nation through a people and particularly through one man. So he chose Abraham to be the founding of that nation that would bring forth the Messiah. So the significance of the, the Israelites is that they are the people, they are the descendants from whom Messiah came. It was part of God's chosen plan to redeem the world, to show himself, to demonstrate himself through a people. And he chose Israel as that people to bring forth a light to the nations and to regather all people back unto Yahweh. They forsook their calling. And one amongst them is Jesus Christ our Savior. Rose as the true Israel. He's the true Prince of God. The true one that lived out the destiny of all the of Israel. So all the promises and all the benefits of Israel was manifested in Christ Messiah. Because he was the true Israel. So the respect that we pay to them now. Is that they are the people through whom the oracles of God came. As Paul said in the book of Romans. God demonstrated himself. God revealed scripture through them. So that's the honor that they're due. And it is through their lineage that Messiah has came. But in the fullness of the revelation. And the place where many of them. 
of the Hebrew Israelites go astray is that they missed the true call of Israel. They were called to be a light to the nations, to reconcile all people unto God, to bring forth the call and the, the, the life of Messiah so that people can be reconciled back to God. God wasn't having a plan where he was just going to save this one particular group of people. You can read it through Isaiah. You read it through Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all this plan. God's whole plan the whole time was to save all nations. But he was going through it through this one people. So what the Hebrew Israelites go astray is they elevate this one people as being the chief recipients of salvation. Like I said, they're different camps. All of them don't do it. But most of the camps, I'm saved because my skin dark, which means I'm an Israelite. And my light-skinned brother, he ain't quiet. Some of them don't go that far. But that's the separation that comes from. But when Christ came, who brought the fullness of salvation, the gates are open to all. So there's no special thing about being an Israelite when it comes to salvation. There's no special call about being a Jew when it comes to salvation. The same thing the Jews get, the Gentiles get. The same thing blessings that they get, we all get because in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. That we have been engrafted into the household of Israel. So we all Israelites, if you have faith in Abraham, we all are the descendants of Abraham. So no matter the white is or the white, as they would say, is a child of Abraham. He is a true Jew because he's been circumcised in his heart if he believes in Jesus. You, you, you get what I'm saying? And that's the place where they go astray. And since they find out their identity in being an Israelite, a lot of them get to the point where they forsake Messiah and seek to live like what they think Jews live like. So they walk around with the tassels on them and they wear the long things and they refuse to cut their beards because they're trying to gain salvation and honor God through the system set up through Moses, forsaking Messiah, the true light of salvation. And what they fail to see is that you cannot fulfill the law of Moses. Because Christ has fulfilled them. So the only way you can live out all that stuff that God say in, in, in Exodus and Numbers, Leviticus, is if you know Jesus. Because he's the one that brought fulfillment. He said, I ain't come to do away with it, but I came to fulfill. So he brought it to completion. And if they pay attention, you will see that God set this thing up so that that system is broken. Because the temple has been destroyed since 70 AD. Over I can't put a number on it, but a vast majority of the laws, if you read in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is centered around the temple. Like, they were, well, we pay tithes. Like, church, we follow, we pay tithes. You can't pay tithes. Biblically, you can't pay tithes. Because to biblically pay tithes, you had to make a journey to the temple. You had it, God marked it out at a certain time in the year. You had to make a journey to the temple and you brought all your tithes to the temple. That's what Malachi was talking about when he said bring all your tithes into the storehouse. Cause you had to make a, ain't no temple. So where are we gonna take them? <laughs> I'm the temple. The preacher the temple. He the temple just like I'm the temple. So why are you gonna bring them to me? <laughs> That's a side point. I ain't even take that one out to take. <laughs> yeah, so the person sitting next to you, they the temple. Take them to them. <laughs> What's that? Well, she, she ain't no priest. Well, we all are priests in the kingdom of God. That's what he made us. She'll preach just like you a priest. 
So why y'all pay tithe to each other? <laughs> that's a whole nother subject. You can mess me up. But we probably talking about the Hebrew Israelites. But that's the main thing. They over elevate the identity of Israel to the point of discounting the work of Messiah. Now you got some out there that, that hold to it and they be true and they elevate Messiah and they believe in Jesus as Messiah. They just say, this is my heritage and this is who I am. I ain't got no problem with them people. But the ones who want to take us back to Moses and the ones who want to turn us away from loving our brethren because they look a little different from us. That's the devil. No problem. Any other questions? That's it. They all yours. Oh, you got one. Okay. If you blaspheme Jesus, will you be forgiven because the Holy Ghost and Jesus are the same? Oh, that's pretty deep. Uh, Jesus in the gospel, he said that blaspheme of God and blaspheme of the Son of Man will be forgiven you, but blaspheme of the Holy Spirit will not. So in his mind, it was a little bit different. So it's possible to be forgiven for that. Any other question? That was a good question. I never heard that one before. All right, that's it.